MSW Media. Prevail. Це щотижнева програма про політику. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Globalno korupcijo ta brodbu za demokratijo. Ja ora. A tebe? I matnon? Kom ustedes? Su anfitrion? I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Stephen Beschloss is here. Stephen is a journalist, an author, a professor, a filmmaker. Um, he's done lots of different interesting things. And he writes a terrific substack called America, America, which he's been doing since uh, right after the insurrection. So two and a half years now. One of my favorite substacks, and I encourage everybody to go check that out. It's just america.substack.com. We talk about a lot of things. Up front, we talk about the current political situation about Trump and how the media is covering Trump and how the media has failed, continues to fail. And then we talk about some of his stuff. He has a book that he wrote about Lee Harvey Oswald called The Gunman and His Mother, Lee Harvey Oswald, Marguerite Oswald, and the Making of an Assassin. So uh, I wanted to have him on just to talk about that because I think the JFK stuff is interesting. So that was a particularly interesting part of the discussion. And then we talked about Biden and, you know, President Biden, his many, many uh, accomplishments, uh, what the media thinks of him, where the election might be going, where Stephen thinks he fits in historically. And of course, you guys know what, what I think about that. Yeah, again, great conversation. Stephen's somebody I've known on Twitter for a long time and I've never met before. So it was a great pleasure for me to have him on the show. Stick around for that. I don't have much up front. I, I'm scanning the news stories. It's, it's Thursday morning. It's 5.15 a.m. I'm scanning the news stories. Everything sucks. Uh, you know, Putin is, is uh, you know, has vowed to continue the war. There's going to be no peace, he says, until his war objectives are met, to which I'll add, or unless you drop dead, because that would also end the war. It, it's just a sad joke that this guy is in power. It's a sad joke, just, just a, a sham, the fact that he's even pretending that this is an election like a normal country. And it's pathetic that the Republicans here in the United States are just lining up to kiss this guy's feet. It's really disgusting. Not giving aid to Ukraine is basically helping Putin. Not basically, it just is. Ukraine needs the aid. And if we give them the aid, they will win. And that's what we want. We want them to win and defeat Russia, comma, our enemy for the last 7,500 years, comma, without us having to do anything. All we have to do is give them arms. This is not complicated. We don't want uh, American boots on the ground, but if Putin wins in Ukraine, he's going to keep going. And if he invades, say, Poland, uh, then we're all drawn into a war. Do we want that? No, we do not want that. So the obvious easy thing to do is to support Ukraine as much as we can in the war, as I've been saying on this podcast, even before the invasion, right? Um, Ukraine right now, um, it, it, the fight could not be more basic. It is... Uh, an occupying force, a real true occupying force, you know, versus the people that live there. It is evil versus good, in a sense, you know, that there's, they, they don't need to be there. They're doing terrorist stuff, war crimes every day. 
you know, my friend Zarina Zabriskie has been on this show many times at this point, reporting from Kherson and elsewhere, talking about all the atrocities committed by the Russians. It's also atrocities against their own people, by the way. I read a thing where there's like 300,000 Russians have died in Ukraine, which is, I mean, come on. Why, why do we want this? He's, you know, he's starting now to make, make it so people are, can't leave um, without signing up for military service. He's basically condemning an entire generation of Russian men to die. And why? For what fucking purpose? There is no purpose. His own bloated, idiotic, stupid ambitions, you know, to reunite the Soviet Union, whatever the fuck he, I don't know what goes on in that stupid head of his, but it doesn't make any sense. It's ridiculous. You already have the biggest country on the planet. Just be happy. Nobody wants to invade your stupid country, Vlad. Sit down. Relax. So I don't know what's going to happen here. The Europeans seem to be okay with pushing back on him. Um, although there's, you know, there's tensions in some of these countries now in Hungary, now in Slovakia, you know, with leaders who are uh, on Putin's side. That horrible Viktor Orban guy, you know, he was a bagman for Mogilevich. He's a fucking mobster. He's a tool of the Russian mob. Somehow he's running Hungary. Of course he's on Putin's side. And Tucker's on his side. So that tells you all you need to know. I, I don't know. I see this very clearly. This is just a battle between democracy and fascism. And I, I don't know how it could be any more clear. So I'm on the side of democracy. I think everybody listening to this is also on the side of democracy. We need to make sure that everybody out in the wild who doesn't pay attention to politics understands what's at stake here. And Stephen and I talk about this a bit on the pod. The media is not doing a great job telling everybody what the stakes are. This is something Jay Rosen of NYU came up, the, the media professor, you know, report about the stakes. You know, in other words, don't worry about the horse race. Don't worry about the polling. Talk about the stakes of who's going to win the election. If Trump wins, what's going to happen? Well, I've written about it on my on my Substack. you know. Guy is going to be a dictator. That's what he wants to do. He's now at rallies saying this and people are cheering him. So uh, we do not want this fucking rapist criminal to be a dictator, okay? And don't tell me that, oh, well, you know, that'll never happen. Why? What evidence are you using to support that? Because he's going to go in there and he's going to do whatever the fuck he wants and he's going to install weirdo, competent people to do his bidding. I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't put it any more starkly than that. This next election is really, it will be the last election if Trump wins, period. Or the last real one. You know, I understand Putin is running for re-election now too. So I guess there will be elections, but they'll be meaningless. And that's it. We're going to be stuck with these people. So let's not be stuck with these people. Let's make sure that everybody out there knows all the good stuff Biden has been doing. And more importantly, that not voting for him is voting for Trump. And Trump wants to be a dictator. And that's what he's going to do. This isn't hyperbole. I'm not chicken littling this shit. He's said it. His followers have said it. This is the plan. So, you know, grim stuff as we head into the holiday season, but we have to address it. We have to address it now or we won't have the luxury of addressing it ever again. So uh, on that cheery note, <laughs> it was a great conversation with Stephen Beschloss. I enjoyed it. So I'm going to stop my prattle and we'll be right back with Stephen Beschloss. Hey, it's Nunzio Siccarelli, president of the Bank of the Bada Bing, Jersey's finest financial services firm. I'm here to tell you about a new online dating app made by wise guys for wise guys, Mobster. 
That's mobster, without the E, because who the fuck knows why? Need to replace your gumad? Looking for a date for your big weekend in Boca? Did Christiane Allen quit as your press secretary? Whether you're an enforcer, a racket guy, some corrupt attorney or judge, or the head of one of the five families, mobster's the best place to find some action. And hey, we won't sell your data like that lying sack of shit Mark Zuckerberg. Some people got ethics. Mobster, you swipe left, I'll break your fucking hand. And now, back to the show. Stephen Beschloss, welcome to Prevail. Great to be with you, Greg. You and I have known each other, I guess, on Twitter and on social media for quite some time. I, I lost all track of time. We were talking about this a little before we, you know, I I don't know what happened before the pandemic, after. I think because of the pandemic, my my sense of timing is all off. Um, but it's exciting to have you on and talk to you because I've read your your Substack now for, when did you launch it? It's been a while now, right? You were pretty early. Well, I launched it the month after the insurrection. So that would be the end of February 2021. So it's two and a half years. Yeah. Congratulations. It's uh, it's called America, America. I, I you know, I read it all the time and I think it's a really good one. Um, you do a great job. And and what I like about it the most is that you always come at it from a place of hope, which is something I always try to do. Sometimes you can't. But, <laughs> you know, but I think you, you, you're you very good at finding the uh, the hopeful elements and things. And I think I, I don't even when you're writing about like horrible things, which, you know, you're often writing about horrible things. I never leave your column feeling like you know, like I want to go put my head in the oven or something. I feel like, right. you know, hopeful about it. So, uh, and it's hard to do that. So, you know, I think it's, I think you do a really good job. Thank you. And I, I would say it's called America, America. There's not one America. There's, well, there's many Americas, but what there surely is, is a, is an America that deserves, deserves an ode, that deserves a tribute, that deserves to be like honored and uh, recognized for its beauty and its possibility. And then there's that other place. And so, you know, the cha the challenge, the necessity is to do both, right? To capture both. And it's true. It's always tricky sometimes when you're talking about, you know, the onslaught of dictatorship or, right. you know, uh, uh, extreme violence or the constant flood of violent rhetoric and on and on and on. It's hard, hard to find a hopeful place and you don't want to do it in a, in a Pollyannish way. It has to, it has to be authentic. So I, I appreciate your comment. Yeah. And you do. And I think it's great. I was going to ask you about the title because I always I sort of assumed it was in America, America. But I, I guess it's the two different Americas. It's good. I like that. Um, OK, so your background, you, ha you have a uh, quite a background. You've done a lot of different things. You've had bylines in uh, enviable publications, New Yorker, New York Times, WAPO. You're nominated for a Pulitzer. Um, you've written books on America and also on Lee Harvey Oswald and his mom, which we're going to get to in a little while. Uh, you're a professor. You've made documentary films. You've done feature films. And I guess you've stayed at the Ritz-Carlton a lot. Uh, <laughs> that's what I get from <laughs> from the bio. Now you have this uh, this new project um, and you have the video, this media misses with Mark Jacob. Um, so I wanted to talk about and I, I especially with people who who I know from Twitter and I've known for a long time. Uh, what prompted you to sort of pivot into covering all of the Trump stuff kind of all the time? Uh, yeah. Because before you weren't. The, a lot of these things are not about Trump at all, and they're about other things. So what what was was there an origin story for you? How did you decide to do this? 
Yeah, there there is an origin story uh, that you can really trace from the early days of Trump. I have to say, I mean, I I used to be that person. I was never simply a news reporter. I was always looking for point of view. I was always looking for a first person perspective on things. I was always looking for a way to tell a story that got to something deeper beyond breaking news. On the other hand, so I did a lot of feature work and in a lot of different sort of intellectual realms, kind of current current affairs realms. Um, but what was true was that in those early years, it became clear it wasn't good enough just to just to enunciate facts uh, without saying what I thought and what I felt, uh, that it became increasingly important to say what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false, what's normal and what's crazy. And, and that yeah. that if we didn't do that, and we we had the risk of people with the daily onslaught, the the constant degrading, um, not only of sort of the truth, but people's capacity to know what's true and false. And so it was clear to me early on that I I, I couldn't sort of hide behind, if you will, the traditional notions about a journalist who's you know, uh, only providing a kind of neutral perspective of multiple points of view and is never saying what they actually think is right or wrong. And so I, I decided to do that. I started to do that more aggressively. I was, you know, posting 10, 12 times a day. I, mean, I felt that there was a lot that needed to be said. And the result of that is that the, that the whole thing just sort of, you know, uh, uh, went crazy. I mean, it just really escalated and escalated and escalated. What I discovered is that people actually in these times really needed uh, yeah. uh, people who were articulating what the hell is going on and uh, help them to sort of think through what was going on. And so uh, people found value in what I was sharing. I would also just sort of, if I can sort of roll forward, if you get to 2021, now it's the month of the insurrection. And I, you know, I was, I mean, I'd written some, uh, you know, opinion pieces for the Washington Post, I was doing, you know, other sort of traditional things for traditional outlets. But what was uh, increasingly important was to talk about what was happening after January 6th. And, and that month, I mean, I have to say, I had 60 million impressions that month. Uh, you know, about 10% engagement rate. It was, it was crazy. Like, kind of engagement, like two million a day. It was just, it was crazy. And it just told me, in a way that I was able to see over the years, is just how intensely people were feeling. And you know, that that really kind of evolved into uh, starting uh, America, America, and the Substack of my own. I think it's great, as I, you know, as I've said, and I think it's it's also uh, great that you decided to do that because I think it's, I, you know, I come at this from I was a novelist once upon a time, and a lot of people that I know from the literary world just didn't do anything. You know, they just kept on writing their novels about some what, and it's like, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but this, the world yeah. is on fire. You know, this is not the time for that. Not to be too moral about it, but I felt like I had a duty to my country. I mean, yeah. I, I, I really did. And uh, and I likewise couldn't understand all the people who chose to stay out, who felt it was okay not to say anything, or for whatever reasons, they were in worlds where they felt they couldn't say anything. That Well, that's true, too. And I think it's important to have, you know, your skill specifically, which is one of, of narrative, you know, telling a story and being able to look at you know, there's this thing happened and that thing happened and this other thing happened over here. How do they relate together? I think that's the thing that people need the most help with. Um, and right. that's the thing that the media doesn't really right. provide. Uh, it doesn't provide context. Um, and that's 
that's just how it works. That's how newspapers are. They tell you what happened today. And then they sort of assume that, you know, the best, it's like watching a soap opera to some degree, they assume, you right. know, what happened before, even though, especially now you kind of don't. And it, you know, how do you jump in? How do you tell the story? So uh, I think that's great. Now you've released this, there's this video, it's called, it it's called media misses. Is yeah. that the, that's the name of it uh, with Mark Jacobs. So this is, this is pretty new. So tell us about that. What's the, what's, how does it differ from the Substack? Yeah. What so Mark is a, a former Metro editor of Chicago Tribune. Uh, I had connected with him actually in Chicago at one point, I actually connected him uh, with him first on social media and then reached out to him in the real world. And uh, what I saw was that he had pretty strong media criticism. He had left the Chicago Trim Tribune had something important and interesting to say regularly. Uh, he actually wrote a couple of columns for America America, so I got a chance to work with him and to get a feeling of him as a as a writer. Um, but then we started to talk about, and I, I just had this idea that the need for media criticism to focus on what journalists were doing wrong and i'm and i'm focusing on the wrong you know who were you know political reporters who were uh, just covering what's going on now as a political story a horse race not a crime story not not a story about the survival of democracy and uh to me they were missing so many things and you know while we want to focus on a lot of the bigger issues that are going on oftentimes the way in which those stories are covered gets lost and you know as you and I know the the framing of the stories the headlines about those stories is often as far as people get to figuring out yeah. what actually happened so so the idea was let's do this regularly. Uh, we first talked bi-weekly, we'll probably do it weekly. So far, we're doing it weekly, super short, like five to seven minutes. Just pick one story, look at it uh, as closely as we can, get in, get out, say what's working, say what's not. And you know, hopefully over time, this sort of collection will provide some, some ability to motivate a few people that maybe they should do things a little differently. I, I like him a lot. He he's he's one of my favorite Twitter follows. Uh, Mark is and you know the the criticism of the media. I think is it's just super important. So I was going to talk about this later, but since we since we brought it up, let's let's go into it now about the journalism because uh, you know in 2016, I think it's fair to say that the the, the media failed. Um, I, I my chapter in my book is the fourth estate crapped the bed, and <laughs> I think you know the reasons why are are manifold. I mean. It, uh, Manafort and Manafort, uh, you know, <laughs> I think they tr they covered Trump like he was a celebrity, like he was yep. a curiosity, like he yep. didn't have any chance of winning. And they really didn't treat him like they didn't vet him the way that they would. Don't take him seriously. Right. Right. And I think that was part of the problem. Um, and then in their defense, I think, you know, the media had never been in this situation before where they had to cover somebody like this and they right. just, they just couldn't figure it out. Right now, eight years later, we're still making enormous mistakes covering this guy. So why do you think that is? Why can't the media cover this guy properly? You know, it's almost a, a matter of a social convention first, which is people feel the need to be courteous and maybe even to assume that people will do the right thing eventually. And if they do the wrong thing, that it's an error, that it's not who they are. Uh, and, and so it's taken an awfully long time for people to get over this idea that when you know he's pouring out all of his lies day after day after day, and, and they're just being called claims 
or uh, you know, gently falsehoods, or or just not saying that lies are lies, right? That was one thing. It, in New York Times, Washington, I mean, all of the major papers took a long time before they called lies lies, and, and it's that kind of attempt at neutrality, but courtesy, which is just exactly the place that Trump has loved to and does by by instinct to exploit. Yeah, that's uh, a good so, that's, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, he exploits everybody's good nature, I think, to some yeah. degree. Yeah, and and I think that's true. I mean, I think that's true in every walk of life, right? People who are his vendors and he ends up screwing them or uh, people who are uh, in the uh, in the court system who think that he'll follow norms and traditions uh, until he doesn't and then don't know what to do. So so I, I, you know, I don't want to hold journalism separate from all other realms of life. I think I think these things are connected, but you know, the tradition of so-called objectivity or so-called neutrality uh, the desire to show what both sides are on any given topic and not necessarily weighing in on what's right or wrong, what's true or false. Uh, I think that that's worked against uh, being able to address this guy in the way that he needed to be addressed because he's not playing the game that everyone else is. And, yeah. and so the rules do not apply. Yeah, no, they don't. Um, and then the journalism in general, it's not a monolith also. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel right. like, you know, obviously, lots of journalists did great work because I know everything that I know that happened because I read it in the newspaper. It's not like I had sources, right. certainly at that time. And uh, and yet the framing of it and the I, I can feel like the editorial meetings just, you know, pushing back on the narrative. Oh, no, no. We don't want well, to just say you know. what happened. Say it directly. Yeah. Don't don't just gloss over it. Don't just sort of you know get to it in a in a gentle way that uh, that he's going in a different direction. You know this kind of thing. You know say that he's aiming for dictatorship. Don't say he's veering he's veering toward the right or you know just there, there's always been a lot of language that's been used to try to soften the danger that's in our midst and you know that's got to stop. I mean. And I've tried to say over these years, you know, the reason why I've worked really hard to try to say things more directly uh, as strongly as I can. And, you know, when I'm constitutionally sort of uh, inclined not to to be incendiary, but but, you know, when your house is on fire, you need to you need to uh, act accordingly. You, you can't just say, hmm, that, that there's a fire over here and there's uh, firemen coming and we're going to get some water. And, you know, there's a problem that's coming. Well, no, the house is on fire and it's about to burn down. Say so. And, and if the anarchist is in the room, say so. The fact that the New York pitch bot, that account on Twitter, which is yeah. so great as as satire, has been operating for as long as it has. And the time still hasn't fucking changed. Yeah. It, it, you know, is emblematic of the problem, which is that they can't, especially in the headlines, they can't, they just can't get away from the way that they've decided to frame yeah. everything. You know, well, well the other thing the is this need to uh, uh, to try to be amusing also. Yeah. Right. So, so I'm, you know, I'm all for humor. I, I, I'm all for irony and uh, and a good laugh. But, but again, when when we're talking about something that represents the seriousness, the the genuine danger to the survival of democracy, uh, you know, it's not it's not a good idea to to take it light in your coverage. I mean, to to your point, uh, when he when Ivanka Trump went to testify in the New York case. 
which is a big deal. This is the case of the guy that used to be the president who's going to run for president again. He's going to be the nominee. It's a huge fraud case. The Times basically sent a, like a fashion reporter to talk about like what they were all wearing. And that right. was one of the top, you know, kind of stories in the thing. What's Ivanka wearing? How is it different yeah. now? That not that that shouldn't be written about in the fashion section, fine, but they gave it like this sort of front page coverage as if that was the only way to talk about the story. And look, that's that that puts a responsibility on people like you and people like me and other people who who see what's going on uh, to say things as directly as we can. Uh, and you know, look, it's always this question. I think we went through some years where mockery. Uh, try to humiliate him to sort of just show how not just ludicrous, but how just, you know, batshit crazy he is to do that and hope that that would break through. But but I think we're beyond that, in my view. Uh, uh, I think we're at a point now where you just need to say things as intensely as you can about what the dangers are. And, you know, and look, also to say, and this is for me, the point about hope or optimism, uh, those outcomes are not inevitable. The majority of the country, you know, still believes in democracy, even if, uh, you know, that that majority is waning. You know, the majority of the country still wants compassion and decency in public life. I mean, I think that there's there, there's enough that's on our side that uh, if we can continue to expand people's capacity to imagine the future, Right, what that future looks like, then we just might be able to uh, to motivate enough people to you know get off their couches and do something. I think I think you're right. I mean, we certainly have the numbers, and also part of my brain is like, you know, dude, he he lost by eight million votes last time. How's he? Gonna, <laughs> he's going to win by more now. Like, who's voting right. for this clown? Right. Uh, but it, you know, to, to your point, it's also the danger is is much more intense now. I think the stakes are much higher. On our live uh, YouTube show that we do, the 5-8, we had uh, Jen Murchia was on last night, and she was talking about um, the idea of comparing Trump to Hitler and that Trump actually wants to be compared to Hitler because Hitler was a big strong man and he wants right. to present himself uh, as a strong man. I mean, he's, a he's made no secret of you know his desire to be a dictator. The media seems to be coming around. I mean, do you think people understand the threat or do you think we're just too many people out to lunch. Well, I, I think that we have a problem with indifference, right? I mean, we, we know that uh, more than a third of the country didn't vote in 2020. Uh, the, there was a danger then. It wasn't uh, confusing to most Americans. Uh, that's why Biden ended up in the office. But I think indifference remains sort of at the center of things in terms of people feeling like, oh, maybe he wasn't that bad, or you know, maybe it won't be so bad, or you know, I have a problem with him on this issue or that issue. And you know, obviously now we're looking at people who are you know pro-Palestinian or who are looking at his uh, uh, policy in terms of the Israel-Hamas war and saying like, oh, I'll never vote for uh, Joe Biden. And well, uh, I'm sorry, to, to do what? To let what happen? Um, so so there's a lot of different uh, ways that people are, in my view, minimizing what's happened. And so, so I think and what can happen. So I think that the work between now and next November is, you know, methodically, compulsively, hopefully not boringly, but but to, you know, week after week, week after week to keep uh, getting at this one way or another. Yeah, I think we have to. Um, Robert Kagan, who's not, you know, to be confused with some tree hugging liberal, uh, wrote two now, two big columns in the Washington Post. The first one, 
very, very pessimistically saying, yeah, the dictatorship's coming and there's we're really fucked. Um, that's 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 the, uh, you know, too long didn't read version. And yeah, then I think it. I think they got so much flack about it that they made him write a, hey, what can we do about this column? Uh. And most of what he wants to do is he's, he puts the blame on basically the establishment Republicans uh, like Mitt Romney and Nikki Haley and, you know, people like a Paul Ryan who were maybe a little bit removed from Trump and could, if they united and chose to talk, could. And the only person really doing that now is Liz Cheney. Right. Do you think that these people are going to come around or I, I don't know. And why don't they? Why? What, right. Mitt Romney's just he's retiring. What does he care? Yeah, why can't he talk to right. speak the truth? Uh, who wants to write the book on the history, the the uh, Republican history of spinelessness? Right, <laughs> it's such a it's shooting fish in the bucket, right? Uh, whatever that is, shooting the fish in the barrel. It's yeah. it, it's pretty obvious that that the utter inability of Republicans to say what they know is in front of their eyes is shocking. And you know what we've what we've learned: fear and intim intimidation, the threat of violence, the fear that if you speak out, it's going to affect your family, that they're that the death threats and all the other things that 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 we know about are coming for you if you if you dare to speak out against the malignant one. And uh, I mean, so I I, I don't want to minimize what has evolved, which is that even Republicans are afraid uh, and, and they're, you know, legitimately afraid. Um, you know, we, we, we know who's gotten attacks and, you know, who's faced violence, judges and, and you know, witnesses. And, and we can go through the whole litany of people who have. But, you know, the thing about Kagan's point is that for me, is he talked about 13 weeks, that there's 13 weeks until uh, Super Tuesday. And by then, basically, Trump will have it locked up. So if you think that, well, it's next November, well, no, it's not next November, it's 13 weeks. And what that means uh, as he puts it, and I think he's right, is that then whatever resistance there may have been within the Republicans is going to evaporate because then they think he's presumptive, he's prohibitive, he's the guy, you know, we better get in line. Uh, and so, um, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on all of us uh, really accepting that that's where this is going, but also doing the work so that the, uh, that the outcome that we all fear is not inevitable. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it. Those are all uh, good points. Um, okay, this is a good time to take a short break. We're going to be right back with Stephen Beschloss. Welcome to the 5-8. This is what we do here. The 5-8, your Friday night hang. We take five of the week's most notable and newsworthy topics and spend eight minutes covering each one. Yeah, it, it, like everything else associated with Trump, it's a walking disaster. Prosecution is important because it's the only thing that starts to puncture their personality cults. I really do need people to remember, like, tell uh, Americans history. Tell the actual story that this country actually did that. What we need to be selling out there is that we are the antidote to chaos, that we are actually um, just for responsible, effective government. There is no greater um, issue that sums up democracy versus fascism than abortion. There is nothing more authoritarian than the state telling a woman that she must carry to term Forced a, birth. A, a, yeah. a pregnancy that she does not want. Five segments, three minutes of evolving animation by Chunk, two revved up hosts, one comic interlude. It's not the end of the world, just a Twitter. A 
special guest. Basically, what we are now is bailout nation in banks. Because nowadays, elections are not about facts. And as many cocktails as we deem necessary. So I'm calling this a Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> when they go low, bury them. They're already down in the gutter. Join me, Greg Oliar, and LB, Stephanie Koff. Our rants to one another end up being this show. This is what we decided to do with our friendship. Friday nights, live, 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. It's the 5-8. I guess it's okay. People seem to like it. Okay, we're back with Stephen Beschloss. I want to go back uh, a ways now uh, and not talk about Trump for a few minutes uh, if you don't, if you don't mind, there there are other things inside my head. I swear. <laughs> um, now I I was digging through your archives, and you spent you spent time in Russia back in in Moscow and Saint Petersburg in the nineties and in the early aughts, which I think is a yes. super fascinating time to, to have been there. And from your descriptions of it, it seems like it was a place that was you know sort of optimistic, trending upward, and obviously that did not hold right. <laughs> the upward trend right. did not hold so i'm just curious what your take is now having been there having been around the russian people what did you see happen what do you think about putin how has putin changed just what do you think about when you look at what's happening in russia yeah. now well there's a big question so uh, you know so i mean i probably spent in the 90s particularly the early 90s probably in in moscow 20 times uh, I was living part of that time in Helsinki, but I also was living in New York as well. And I was kind of going back and forth. And actually, I'd written a movie that was set in New York City. And I thought, you know what, if I reset this story, it was kind of noir love story, reset it in Moscow in the early days after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it had, it adds a whole other layer in terms of what was going on. And, you know, uh, um, you know we still haven't made the movie. That's a, that's a whole another story about <laughs> money raising and especially to make a movie in Russia in that time that was so volatile. Um, but but I had the chance to be there, you know, right before and right after the collapse in December of uh, 1991. And, you know, to me, it was just fascinating to be there because that was a time when, um, you know, people woke up in the morning and their country no longer existed. Like, now what? Uh, that was tumultuous and difficult, you know, 60 rubles, which was a month's salary, became enough to buy a couple of Snickers bars. And so, you know, you, you would go to the, you know, the metro stations and the, you know, the tunnels underneath them, the viaducts, and um, people would be lined up on the street selling a pair of uh, silk stockings or a silver cup or a child's, you know, doll or something, you know, people were struggling to live. And so those early years in the 90s were really tough for people. They were hopeful because suddenly the world opened up and there was a sense of, optimism and the opportunity to connect with the West. Um, and they saw that early on as a kind of uh, idealistic uh, paradise, even that the world uh, outside was going to be this better place that now they could be a part of a part of and, and gradually, that began to go away. Um, that they realized that maybe the West wasn't the uh, you know idyllic like they thought it was, and and the opportunities for them were maybe not everything that they hoped for. Fast forward a bit, then you've got Putin coming in, and you know in a country that was never 
uh, never very wedded to democracy anyway, you know, they return to uh, you know a strong man who started to turn things around with the economy and things started to get better. And suddenly there was more lights in Moscow and suddenly there was more, you know, more investment in a lot of the visible things in their world and, you know, income started to go back up. And so, you know, people were willing to let everything else happen from there. So, um, you know, I think for me, that's the context. And I think, I mean, I just give you one more one more story around the, you know, the time of the bombing of the uh, Russian White House when Yeltsin was still in power. I remember talking to a lot of people who said, oh, I really wish we were more like China. Not, not like America and democracy in the yeah. West, more like China, because, you know, they had figured out how to have capitalism and to have kind of centralized uh, uh, power from um, the country to be able to make sure that things, you know, worked. So, so you know, it, it was clear that Putin uh, was able to take advantage of its natural embedded DNA to be able to, you know, to be in the position that he's in, you know, and for him, of course, you know, it's something I think a lot of the people in the West missed. I'm thinking of uh, Angela Merkel, for example, who thought, like, you can deal with this guy, you can negotiate with this guy, we can bring him into the democratic fold. And uh, boy, they missed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he played him, you know, he he played a succession of US presidents on both from both parties. And that, you know, that's what happened. But did you see, was there any indication that he would go this wackadoodle? Because invading Ukraine like this is is... Well, yeah. yeah, of course, because he said he said early on that uh, you know that that in his view the uh, Soviet Union you know never should have gone away. You know, look, he lived really well during the Soviet Union uh, period. Uh, you know, in his life, you know, as a KGB agent in East Germany and otherwise, you know, he did very well during that period. So, so he has a, a rosy memory about the good old days, and you know, he uh, had said a number of times that he was interested in in putting back together the the collection of republics that comprise the Soviet Union. You know, one of those people, the kind of Russian na- nationalist who believed in kind of greater Russia and this idea about the primacy of uh, Russia in the world. So, you know, that instinct, I think, was and is central to uh, to who he was then and, and obviously what he's doing now. Yeah. Somebody else who was uh, a big fan of the Soviet Union, at least for a certain period of time, is Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, now, you <laughs> you wrote a book called The Gunman and His Mother, Lee Harvey Oswald, Marguerite Oswald, and the making of an assassin. And uh, I didn't know that you wrote this. So uh, what, I, I, the, the 60th anniversary of the assassination was, right. was, la- was recently, last month. I went through a phase where I went deep diving into all this stuff. So it's always interesting to me. I have a book here. I have this Marina and Lee, which is I know his that wife. Book. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> I have some books and all this stuff. First of all, what was your impetus for writing, to, coming at it from this angle? Because I hadn't yeah. seen anybody else writing something quite like this. Yeah, well, and that that's, well, you just hit the point, really, which was I kept waiting for somebody else to write this story to really kind of spotlight it. You know, there are parts of uh, Norman Mailer's book, An American Tale, uh, not Driver's American Tragedy, American Tale, that got into a lot of it because records opened up to sort of look at what was going on in the Soviet Union during those years. So, so there were 
aspects of that in that book there was in the Priscilla Johnson Macmillan book that of Maureen and Lee that you're talking about um but you know I again when I was in Finland in the early 90s uh I was working with a Finnish film director we were actually trying to develop a movie about Lee Harvey Oswald and it was the first time I came to understand that Oswald spent some time in Helsinki for a week 10 days and on his way to Moscow where he got a visa in the Russian embassy in Helsinki and then sort of went on to Moscow. Um, so I started to pay attention to the, those years. I think a lot of people don't even know that he was in the Soviet Union. And, and you know, he was in the Soviet Union up until a year before he came back for that kind of downward spiral of the last year of his life. But also, uh, it got me to pay attention to what was the family dynamic. And I started to pay a lot of attention to who was this mother. And with a very specific idea that all the people who focus on conspiracy theories, they are dismissing the possibility that Lee Harvey Oswald had a reason to commit the murder that he did. And so what I wanted to do was to strip away all the rabbit holes that I could go down with uh, with conspiracy theories and just focus on the dynamic of his relationship with his mother. You know, he moved over you know, over uh, uh, almost two dozen times by the time he was 17. They moved and he had a very unstable life. His mother was, uh, you know, somebody with delusions of grandeur and a chip on her shoulder. And boy, did she pass that on to the kid. And, and so he never was able to form very healthy, stable relationships. You know, there were a lot of the makings of somebody whose ability to have a normal life, you know, he didn't finish high school. He, he didn't think he needed to go to school. He was smarter than all of that. You know, all of the things that that undermined his ability to have the skills and, and the education, the things that he needed to succeed in life. And um, and so I, I wanted to look at all of that as a way to, to say, you know, whether you whether you believe in the lone gunman theory or not, look at the trajectory of the boy's life and particularly the downward spiral of the last year of his life. And, and you can understand how that person could be that person, you know, in Dealey Plaza, you know, November 22nd, 63, who would commit that murder, even if you doubt it. Yeah, no, I, I went down the rabbit holes because I went through a period when I went through. And then I read the Gerald Posner book, Case Closed. Yeah. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah. one guy. Case closed. Uh, <laughs> you know, good title. Yeah. I, and I think he, he you wrote about this when you wrote about JFK, uh, whenever that was a couple of weeks ago. And I think he made a similar point in the book, which is that the, the popularity of the of the conspiracy theories and the reason the story won't die is yeah. because we Americans don't want it to be that this weirdo incel loser yeah. Killed in it, it doesn't add, it doesn't add up it, it you know the event itself I, I think it's still legitimately you know the crime of the century it doesn't add up that this person this you know this untalented unskilled you know nobody could be capable of doing this thing that it, it has to be part of a much grander conspiracy and by the way the people who believe in cons uh, the conspiracy also believe that like the government is you know incompetent and incapable of doing anything so you know i don't know how those two things go together but i i, I think the story wouldn't be more important still today because in many ways the the unraveling of our belief in what's true and what's not obviously trust in government, you know, all of those things has broken down. And I think you can surely draw a line between, you know, the Kennedy assassination to, you know, all the kind of crazy conspiracy stuff going on now. Yeah, no, I, th I think so. And I think it also, 
maybe um and Kurt Anderson wrote about this in in Fantasyland like the the JFK conspiracy theories and all this stuff has made like kind of the center so um aware of conspiracy theories that when yeah. something happens like Trump you know canoodling with the Russians during the campaign everyone's like oh no that's just it sounds like a conspiracy theory it can't be true but sometimes things happen sometimes right. people do actually conspire to do things sure um sure you know, and stuff like that. Uh, and then I think the other thing is that there's, you know, there's weird things about the day. If you break it down, there's like, oh, the Secret Service did this. And why did he go to the movie theater after? Oh. And what was Jack Ruby thinking? And But right. any event like that, any big event, whether it's 9-11 or this or something else, there's going to be, if you just isolate any moment in time, there's going to be weird things that right. are, that happen. Right. And, and let me just say... Uh, are we going to find out that the CIA was covering up their incompetence? Yes, we are. I mean, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean that's the <laughs> oldest story of every bureaucracy in the world. They're always trying to kind of cover up their failures. And in this case, you know, he did come back from the Soviet Union. You know, the FBI did visit him. I mean, he did have some meetings with the CIA. You know, those things happened because he, you know, uh, sought to defect to the Soviet Union. He was, a, uh, you know, somebody you would pay attention to, but they obviously didn't do a good enough job. And even, you know, I would say if you take that last month of his life in October of uh, 63, you know, he went to um, to Mexico City. And and he was trying went to the Cuban embassy. He was trying to get a visa to go to Havana. Well, what does that look like? Does that look like he's in a deal with Fidel Castro to be able to you know manage this uh, murder of uh, President Kennedy? Or uh, what Marina said at the time that he had begun reading all about uh, Havana and Cuba and Castro be became or increasingly pro Castro uh, and had that same thing that he had before he went to the Soviet Union, which was this hope that somewhere there's a better world and I can really have the life that I continue to hate and fail at here. So the Russia didn't work. Well, maybe maybe Cuba will. Yeah. And it may not be anything more profound than that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And if you look at the 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 idea that this this you know kind of loserly guy could have accomplished something like this, if you go back and look at all the other presidential assassins, they're all the they're all like that, and including yeah. Hinckley, who failed but still was I don't know a crazy loser, and Gitto and Shulgash, they were all nuts. The only yeah. one that wasn't nuts was was um, Booth, you know. Yeah. But that was Civil War, and I think that was a different. You know. Yeah, look, I, I would also say look into, you know, I mean, it's part of the, my point with the book is look at childhood trauma. You know, it's, yeah. it's I mean, look at Sirhan Sirhan. Uh, you know, as a kid, he saw lots of murder in the streets of Palestine uh, in the 40s before he came to the United States as a teenager. I mean, he was not a not a healthy person. And and so, you know, I think you can go through all of these if you if you look back at the childhood traumas. And in, in Oswald's case, you know, he was 13 years old. He was taken into custody for truancy. And during that time, you had psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers over a three-week period who were able to observe him and interview him and so forth. And they said, you know, this kid needs psychiatric care. He comes from this unstable, uh, unloving family. 
Uh, he needs help. And, and oh, by the way, so does his mother. And, you know, rather than him getting the help that he needs, this is age 13. And you know, his mother yanked him out of New York and, and the jurisdiction of the courts, you know, back to New Orleans, and uh, he never got the help he needed. So, you know, the red flags were there in terms of, you know, that boy's life. And you know, I think it also, I mean, I think part of why I also wanted to look at it is it not only is an opportunity to look at assassins, um, you know, what's the nature of that kind of person, you know, what are the makings of, but also to look at the ways in which uh, a lot of the shooters that we're seeing who do yeah. the mass shootings, a lot of the same characteristics. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, The Gunman and His Mother, that's the name of the book, if Thanks. anybody listening is interested. Now, you wrote another book in, in 2011 called Adrift, Charting Our Course Back to a Great Nation. So, uh how happy are you that Trump made America great again? Is he happy about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, can we can we rewrite the subtitle? From... <laughs> no, I think that. But what I wanted to ask is, what did you prescribe in that book? Was any of it done? And what would you prescribe now? Mm. Well, part of the idea of writing the book was to look what happened after World War II uh, in the United States. You know, you had this kind of post World War II boom that came from, you know, all the kind of economic growth. You had the GI Bill. Um, you, you had the rise of the middle class, you know, people were getting college educations, people were able to buy homes, you know, I, I mean, I was a kid and and thinking to myself, like, oh, you know, what makes America special, it's that we have a stable middle class. And that's not something that's just this week or this year, but gee, that's a forever thing, isn't it? And what we saw actually was a decline you know, the decline of the country in lots of ways. I mean, economically, culturally, politically, polarization, you know, all of the things that we can talk about that were emerging and I think were exacerbated on, under Reagan that led to kind of a disparity and, and growing uh, polarization, you know, not, not just in terms of groups and culture and ideas, but also in terms of economic fortune. And, um, you know, I think we've, we've never really recovered from it. Um, the solutions are in many ways is quite simple, which is um, education, 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 um, you know, focusing on innovation, focusing on science, you know, all of the things advancing, expanding public education, all of the things that we've seen the Republicans in these last years work methodically to undermine. And, you know, we, we used in part the uh, example of uh of Ireland and and for very specific reasons because in the 60s when they were dealing with pretty high levels of poverty and the country was really on its heels uh, they made a commitment to public education and you know, within a, a generation you know the the whole economy of Ireland and the fortunes of the people and the uh, numbers of people that were leaving the country to to be able to get opportunity they were coming back and the country was prospering so uh, education 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 and you know that remains I think a central battlefield for the coming years. Yeah, I think it's that's something that's it's not counterintuitive either. Like it makes sense that you would invest in education and then yeah, a generation it. later you would bear the fruit of all of that. Like this like you know, uh Keynesian economics is counterintuitive. Trickle down is it's not even counterintuitive, it's just dumb. Right. But yeah. that that makes perfect sense. There's no there's nothing illogical about it. It's just it it goes exactly how you would expect and the Republicans don't why do you think they don't want it? What is it just to help the rich people and that's it? 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we, we all know that if, if you have a more educated workforce, you know, then they're able to be more productive and, and the country prospers. So that would be a, an obvious thing. But I, I think the maybe the simplest answer is, you know, you have billionaires like the Coke Cokes, used to be the Koch brothers, but the whole kind of Koch bunch um, who saw and, you know, Betsy DeVos and so forth, who saw an opportunity to further enrich themselves by taking control of public education, you know, uh, with vouchers and all the ways that they could privatize it. Um, so so I think that's a, a key. And, and you know, the, the more cynical and surely in these years, that's usually the worst view you have of things is the most likely one, which is that they they actually do just want to keep people as dumb as power as possible as a way to to keep power over people yeah uh, no i i i agree with both of those i didn't think of the vouchers but that's that's a thing too yeah uh no i think that anybody smart anybody who's who can think critically is going to you know quickly realize that yeah, they're these, a danger they're a yeah. danger for them yeah because they're what they're doing is is dumb and and works at against most americans you know, do, do we do we need media media literacy in this time? We sure do. You know, do we need uh, critical thinkers not just to come up with you know fantastic conspiracy theories, but um, but to be able to look to look smartly about what's going on and be able to judge what's what's going on? You know, the if you make that harder for people to do, then whoever's in power has a greater ability to manipulate the public. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it's uh, they have better tools now to manipulate, and they're taking away the ability of people to learn more about how to yeah. think critically. So combining those things, and speaking of of media tools and billionaires who are evil, Elon Musk. You know, Twitter used to be kind of a nice thing. I, I think I, see, I seem to remember vaguely. I wrote a piece. I think the day he took over uh, in October of again, I've lost all track of time, uh, and it was Tower of Bab Elon. That was the title. Uh, because I, I think it really was uh, what happened. I think that he was installed there to destroy it. Uh, this is what I think. And nobody's ever going to, I'll die on that hill. Yeah. And I wrote a long paragraph about all the things he was going to do to ruin it. And almost every single one of them yeah. came to pass. Wouldn't you be wrong? <laughs> you know, the world would be a better place if you were wrong in this case. I know, I know. But alas, alas, no. Uh, so, you know, everybody is scattered. That That's the, the, the sort of takeaway. Some people yeah. left because they couldn't handle it anymore. You know, the, the getting rid of the blue checks made everything more confusing and you could impersonate people. And then the only people that weren't scattered were like Cat Turd and the Nazis, yeah. which, you know, are the people that Elon Musk likes to interact with on, on Twitter all the time which is just kind of disgusting. But what what's the biggest casualty of this, do you think? The, uh, and by this, I mean the destruction of Twitter and the kind of uh, splintering of, this, of the social media that is going right. to replace it. And how do we work around it? Right. So I, I won't just focus on the way in which it, you know, it it helped all kinds of people's careers to sort of build platforms to be able to communicate with publics that they wouldn't before. You know, there's the, you know, there's the creative professional side of things that that has all kinds of individual uh, implications. But I think the larger point is that the fracture, the fracturing, the the collapsing of of that ecosystem, which was so central, that allowed people to communicate with each other. Other, that allowed progressive communities to build and expand and and to to engage and communicate all, all the things that you want to do when you're trying to make sense of the world and and respond critically to to what's going on and, and he broke it 
um, you know, I'm sure you've had the same experience that I do that, you know, the ability to connect with, you know, I mean, I have over 300,000 followers, and I, I used to be able to see what a lot of people were saying and thinking. And I really valued that as a way for me to understand what was on people's minds. And I, I can't find it anymore, you know, amidst all of the trolling and all the abuse and, and uh, you know, the the difficulty that people seem have have in whatever way he broke that algorithm so that people don't find each other anymore. But the result is that it's it's uh, dispersed everyone to everywhere. There's not really a place then once uh, Twitter is gone. You know, there's not a place. I, I don't know about you. I'm, you know, embarrassingly, I'm on six different social media platforms. Right. And and I, you know, we, we could go through them one by one. And, and you know, I I mean, I have followings on all of them, but I, but there's not anywhere that I feel like there's a community uh, where there's a real opportunity to engage and, and have a, a dialogue. And, you know, look, I think that was exactly what they were trying to do. You you break the power of progressive communities by breaking their ability to connect with each other. Yeah. And they did it. You know, they, they really did do it. I mean, I owe every, you know, without Twitter, I don't know. I don't have anything. Nobody knows yeah. who I am. And, yeah. uh, you know, that really helped me. It helped me in my career, but it also helped me learn stuff. Like you said, I mean, it's not just the algorithms broken, like the trending topics, you click on it half the time. I can't even tell why it's trending. You know, right. it'll be like, it's clearly a sports story. And then, you know, you click on jets and it's sports and it's supposed to be about the New York jets. And it's not, it's about jets over somewhere. And it used to be able that they would, you know, if something right. was trending, you could tell why, now you can't even yeah. tell why. And, uh, you know, the problem with the new platforms is that there's no, you know, for the most part, there's no direct messaging, which mm, is exactly. one of the advantages of Twitter is that you can you 100%. Know, connect you know, with people uh, at a yeah. personal level when there's a reason, when there's a need for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now you, you know, you can't, it's just that there, unless you have ever, you know, someone's phone number or something or email address or whatever, it's just not the same thing. It's not the same right. immediacy. And because there's so many different platforms, who's who's in this place? Who's in that place? And there's people I've forgotten about that I'm like, oh, shit, right. I haven't heard from that person in a while. What's going on with them? And they're well, there. They the just, yeah, I just don't see it in my feed anymore. You know, right. you, you lose you lose the communication. And, you know, that that's once you break that, you know, it, what we're learning is it's it's hard to put that back together. You know, nobody else has sort of figured out, you know, what's the ecosystem that allows that to happen. And, and you know, and at the same time for it not just to be a home for all the abuse. You yeah. know, I, I'm thinking back a year ago, and it was actually right around sort of Thanksgiving and just after that, um, where I, I was getting so much abuse, right? So much abuse from all the, you know, all the trolls, all the, you know, neo-Nazis and all, all, all the bigots, all of it. And you know, I, I never used to block people. And then I started to do it. I think in the last year, I've blocked over 10,000 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Well, you have and, to. And, yeah. It was the only way to do it. And look, I have a lot of friends that just said, I'm done, I'm exiting, I'm out, you know, I'm out of X, I'm exiting, you know, that's necessary to do that. And, you know, I, I completely get it. And at the same time, I think there's a, you know, there's a reason to continue to, to also to keep your voice in there. Um, you know, maybe a little bit differently, maybe a little less frequently. I'm not trying to, you know, help Elon Musk uh, advance, but but I am interested in being able to to keep the communication alive. Uh, you know, and hope that maybe that someday it won't be the Saudis or whoever else is uh, manipulating him that will be, you know, deciding our fate. Yeah. The other the other piece was the the immediacy of finding out what was happening. Like I remember right. 
when uh, Michael Cohen was testifying, this is four or five years ago, uh, and about who client number two or three, whatever it was, was, <laughs> I was following the feed of whoever was in the courtroom. So when yeah. we found out it was Sean Hannity, I knew almost immediately, probably yeah. within two minutes of everyone finding out. Well, that's the beauty of the platform. I, I yeah. actually think that when I started paying attention to Twitter as a thing was when I was trying to find the decision. I don't remember what decision, but some Supreme Court decision. I, I started going on Twitter like every you know 30 seconds, uh, thinking that would be the fastest way to find what the what the result was in that particular ruling. And you know, again, we don't really have that anymore. No, no, it's blue sky was pretty good during the weekend of the Hamas war. I have to say, I did, I was able to deep dive relatively quickly but it's not the same it's not there's, there's not enough people there yeah so a couple more questions i don't want to i don't want to keep you too long sure i've said many times uh on this podcast and i've written many times joe biden best president of my lifetime um i think that you know, I, I made a bet with my brother who doesn't think this i like you know 25 30 years from now when you look at the rankings he's going to be high whatever he is right now he's going to be high and uh what, what do you think? Where do you put him, uh, you know, uh, presidents of, of the last 50 years or the last, you know, the 20th century? What, how do you think he's doing? Where do you rate him? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I am a huge positive fan, you know, of, of the man, you know, who, if you do remember, it's almost hard to remember at this point, you know, we were pretty deep into the reality of COVID when he took office. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and you had a, a, a former president who wasn't very interested in, you know, getting vaccines into people's arms. And, you know, you know, B Biden made a big point in the first 100 days about getting whatever it was, 100 million shots, or, you know, I think within 150 or 200 days, it was, you know, 200 million shots, you know, all of that started the turnaround. And, uh, you know, obviously, that's had all kinds of implications, not only saving lives, but also creating the conditions for this incredible economic growth in terms of low unemployment and uh, incredible, you know, 14 million plus new jobs and, and huge manufacturing numbers. Um, you know, and then you go through all of it. I mean, somebody who really has focused on climate change, which along with the dangerous facing democracy to me is the, you know, is the other, you know, most significant existential danger the country's facing. Um, and he's taken it seriously. I think he can do more. Um, but he's, you know, he's put hundreds and, you know, he's put billions of dollars into trying to turn the economy around in terms of electric vehicles and in terms of, you know, uh, insulation for homes and all, all the things that start to make a, a difference with that. Um, you know, he's passed significant legislation, but I think the, you know, so, uh, you know, where does he get placed? I mean, I don't know that I would say he's the, you know, he's the new FDR. I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to do it, but, you know, it's hard to even think back about uh, the Obama years, you know, and I think, you know, you and I would agree that he was a, you know, a great president and we're grateful that he was there, but he, he almost seems you know, in the world we're in, almost irrelevant. And and Biden has been able to embrace this time under extreme circumstances and to advocate, you know, not only now for democracy, but to be able to, in the most sort of improbable ways, to be able to pass significant legislation, including, you know, uh, investment in infrastructure, which, by the way, has had all kinds of impacts for all kinds of red states as well as blue states mm -hmm. around the country. So, you know, he, he's also held on to 
this idea about you know America as a you know as a you know as a democracy as a place of beauty as a place where unity is possible where there is still the idea of this optimism that that uh, that through government that we can actually you know improve the lives of people and and you know and the future is better than the past and you know it feels a little bit like he's struggling for that to connect you know most people are extremely pessimistic and you know we can talk about why but uh, for me yeah, Biden. I mean, I just think Biden's done a great job. Yeah, no, I I agree. I agree with everything you said, and, and I'm I'm surprised. You know, yeah. when he went in there. I thought, okay, well, he'll be fine. He'll he'll put good people in there. He'll be kind of a transitional figure. And no, you know, he's 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 not been that. He's been yeah. really a leader, and yeah. I think morally too. You know, yeah, like he, and- he's clearly not an asshole, which is yeah. nice. It is. You know? It is a relief. It's it's <laughs> almost uh, possible to forget. You know. Um, um, just you know, in in the relief of having a a decent human being in the yeah. office, you know, and how that makes everyday life just a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, that's that's perfectly put. So I have one more question for you uh, before I let you go. So do you still get to stay at Ritz Carlton for free now, or and 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 if so, can you hook me up? Like, what's the you know talk about that because that seemed really interesting. And you you were staying at the you know working for these fancy hotels. I love good hotels, by the way. I'm a big so, fan of good hotels. I, I love good hotels. I, I, I have. I should tell you about the what was the Ritz Carlton in Moscow because I was there before before it <laughs> opened, uh, and was in the presidential suite, by the way, uh, which <laughs> overlooks Red Square. You know where uh, the the infamous place where uh, Trump was supposed to have uh, been uh, peed on. But um, and by the way, that room is uh, it's a safe room. I mean, if the whole building gets bombed, that that room would survive. It's, uh, you know, and it was a lot of Kazakhstan money that built it and uh, on and on and on. But um, so to be clear, so I I was for a while an editor of the Ritz-Carlton's hotel magazine and um, uh, I stated a few, but the deal wasn't that uh, that journalists were given access to all their properties as as beautiful a picture as that would be. Uh, it, you know, they still didn't really make it happen for us. That's too bad. That's too bad. Because yeah. I'm like, oh, that sounded good. I'm going to pretend that you didn't say that and, and yeah. imagine that, that that you were there. But that's cool that you were in the one in Moscow. I didn't even think I didn't even put that together uh, uh, that you were in the room. So that that's interesting. So it, it op- I just give this a really fast. So 2007 is when it opened. I um, and I went there just before just before it opened. And you know I hadn't been back in Moscow for a decade. So I, I was last there in '97. I made a film in in Saint Petersburg and uh, February of '97 called The Miracle about an American TV journalist who goes to Russia with the impossible assignment of filming a miracle. Uh, and it was a kind of fictional documentary. Uh, and we interviewed a lot of, you know, religious leaders and spiritualists and psychics and a lot of uh, a lot of weird and interesting people to ask them where can we find a miracle. That was the the deal. But but then you know I wasn't back for a decade, and so I said to my connections, you know, um, before the hotel opened, like take me. I've got four nights in Moscow. Take me to every high end club, restaurant, everything, so I can see what it was. And and the piece that I wrote was sort of, you know, close your eyes. It's 1997, and it's you know a struggling city, but 
things are beginning to happen now open them a decade later and uh, oh my god you know you you would think that it was just another western city with all the lights and all the restaurants and all the shops and all the things that looked like almost anywhere else um and so you know that was that was an opportunity to do that then now now you know uh, fast forward to you know Trump, Trump Putin invading uh Ukraine and you see where uh, all of that has just been turned backwards again yeah it's sad it really it really is sad sorry sorry to leave you in that place um, no it's okay a, it's it's okay I'm I'm gonna just I'm just gonna imagine the the presidential suite at the Ritz Carlton so yeah that's fine we we, we can end on that on that Lux overlooking of... Red Square yeah uh, where you can see you know the the future and the past of uh the world yeah there you go um okay so you mentioned before you're on what six different social medias so which ones are they where can people find you oh gosh uh, so uh, post, uh, Mastodon, uh, Spoutable. Um, I'm, I'm already running out. Well, I'm still still lingering on X. But you know, the most meaningful thing is uh, please do check out America America. It's America.substack.com. You know, that's where it's not just 280 characters. I'm writing you know genuine essays where you can actually you know say something. And uh, you know, I have a fantastic, growing, thoughtful, interested, engaged community that really uh, cares about democracy and justice and you know the survival of such things yeah and i like you know one of the many things i like about your substack is that like me you you operate on the tip jar model so you don't like do the paywall really right uh, which i like i i think that that's a that's an effective model and uh you know, that's just my personal well, preference. No, so. I, I mean, look, it's I again not to be too moral about it, but I mean, I think it's the duty that we have right now. If we're yeah. gonna if we're gonna do the work to to articulate what's going on, you know, make sure that people can find it and read it. Yeah, I agree. I could could not agree more. I want I want people to read what I read. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's really and, and it's nice. And simple. you write well, and you have something important to say. So you know, don't put up that paywall. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's it. No paywalls. Uh, Stephen Beschloss, thanks so much for joining me today. Greg, thank you so much. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to The Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely, be kind to each other, try and enjoy yourself, and until next time, we shall prevail. M-S-W-Media.